We really, really love singing that song, don't we? As Christians, <clears throat> I was listening to something uh, this past week about that song, In Christ Alone, and uh, realized it was, it's 20 years old. It's uh, just hit its 20-year anniversary. And I remember the first time I heard it, I think was actually uh, Keith and Kristen Getty came to our seminary. I think that was the first time I heard it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they had CDs in the back of the chapel, and I remember getting one, and I would listen to that song over and over and over again. And one of the things interesting this past week is I was listening um, to uh, a description of, of its uh, anniversary in the last 20 years was that uh, there was at some point, the, I believe the Presbyterian Church USA had asked that the words, the wrath of God being satisfied, the wrath of God was satisfied, be changed to the love of God was magnified. And uh, they, they requested that change from, uh, that they use that with the changed lyrics from Stuart Townend and Keith Getty, who uh, came up with the song. And of course, they gave them a big fat no answer. Uh, and the reason for that is because the wrath of God, understanding that Christ's death satisfies the wrath of God, is central to the Christian gospel. But even more interesting is it's only in understanding that that we realize how much the love of God is magnified. In other words, the love of God is magnified when we realize that the wrath of God was satisfied at the cross. So praise God for that song. Praise God that we get to gather like this and sing it in praise to God, but also uh, sing it in a way that edifies one another as we sing it before each other. Uh, we meditate on those wonderful lyrics of praise. If you would, go and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 12. That's where we are, Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. Let me just start by very quickly saying we're not going to cover all of these verses today. Uh, verses 9 to 21, we're just going to start in on these verses. <clears throat> so Romans 12, 9 to 21. You could say that over the last couple of weeks, we've moved from the theological to the practical. And, you know, it, we, it gets a little fuzzy when you start saying that because all right practice is inherently theological. But I think we could say that over the last couple of weeks, we have moved from the theological to the practical. All of the theology that we have covered in chapters 9 through 11 has now been funneled down into everyday practice with this word, therefore, at the beginning of chapter 12. It's amazing how much power is packed into that word. Beginning of chapter 12, therefore, that big train that's been on the tracks up to this point is now being brought out into the implications for everyday life. It is similar to what we find at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. After covering the theology of chapters 1 to 3, and uh, one of the most famous portions, I think, of the New Testament are those, those early chapters of Ephesians. We think of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, but there's also uh, 1, 3 to, to 14, and, and of course also prayer that Paul gives in chapter 3. And the whole section is so richly and densely theological. And then Paul comes to the latter three chapters, chapters 4 to 6, and he begins to go into the practical application of that theology. And in the same way, Paul starts that section with that word, therefore. So chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, all this theology that he gives us in those first three chapters, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of all that great truth about who we now are in Christ. Well, so far on this side of the therefore, we've looked at two things. First, two weeks ago in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, we got a description of basic Christian living. 
This really helps us to hit the reset button. As I said then, those first two verses of chapter 12 are, are really famous. And the reason for that is because they help reorient us back to the basics of Christianity. What does it look like to live as a Christian in the world on, on the most basic level? And chapter 12, verses 1 to 2 gives us that answer. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And rather than being conformed to the world, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That sums up all Christian living. And in fact, as a Christian, anything that you would do or say, any service that you would render, has to, at the end of the day, be built on that foundation. The foundation of chapter 12, verses 1 to two. Second, in verses three to eight, we saw the outworking of the renewed mind in the life of the church. And as we saw this last week, particularly in how we think about ourselves in relation to others. How do we see self in relation to our brothers and sisters in Christ within the church? This very much has to do with our minds. And so the title for last week's sermon was A Renewed Mind in the Church. Unity in diversity and gifts in action. As we see ourselves, as we situate ourselves within the church, we understand that there is unity in diversity and there are gifts among the members of the body, each person having gifts, and, and those gifts are to be used for the building up of the church. Josh, I think there's a bit of an echo here. Just wanted to note that. So today we come to a longer section that runs from verses 9 all the way up through verse 21. It is a list of instructions, a list of commands for everyday Christian living. This is a, a very, very practical portion of God's word, a very practical portion of this letter, verses 9 to 21. Commentators have debated to what extent the content of these verses can be grouped together. And that's one of the things that any commentator or any preacher or interpreter wants to, wants to ask. That's an important question. What's the structure? How do we break this down? And especially when you get all of these commands, when you get all of these instructions, you want to group them. You want to batch them up together so that you can understand, okay, in this section Paul's saying this, and then he moves to this, and what's the logical relationship between this batch and, and that batch? But it's not entirely clear how Paul is thinking about all of these instructions. Some have said this is just a flurry of instructions, just kind of coming at you, a flurry of commands. But there is some logical relationship between them. But whatever one is to say about that, one thing is clear about the section as a whole. It describes in detail what it looks like to be a Christian. So let me say this to you. If you're not a believer, uh, you may have an idea of what it looks like to be a Christian based on someone you've known and you've watched their life, they profess to be a Christian, and you watch their life and you say, I don't want anything to do with that. Maybe, Or maybe you've seen people's lives who are Christians and you say, wow, that's a great example of what I would think it, it means to be a Christian. What I would ask you to do this morning is to kind of put all of that aside and understand that what we are about to read is what it looks like to be a Christian. Now, what you'll discover is that there is no Christian who manifests these things perfectly. We are all, in a sense, hypocrites in that our lives do not perfectly and entirely, as Stan prayed earlier, match up with our profession. And that is because we are still battling our old, fleshy nature that we had in Adam. But we are renewed in our spirits. We are renewed in our minds. And we are transformed people. But we are still carrying around that old in Adamness. What we read here describes what it looks like to live the Christian life. And interestingly, it covers a wide range of topics. I mean, there are a lot of, of instances 
and relationships and scenarios that are present in these verses. So let me go ahead and give you the title for the sermon today. It is A Transformed Life in Practice. Once again, we're thinking about everything we're reading in light of chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. We're building on that. We're building on that. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds. And so as we come to these verses, we are seeing a transformed life in practice. It's very easy to conceive of a transformed life in practice theory, in the abstract. It is so easy to think in the abstract. It requires almost no work. And it is very easy to conceive of life in the abstract. But when we get down into the weeds of life, when we begin to interact with real people, with real sin, confronting our real sin... That's when the Christian life becomes interesting and quite difficult. That is where we begin to realize our great need for God's grace hourly, minute by minute. It is the reason why we see Daniel praying three times a day. That morning and afternoon and evening time, drawing strength from the Lord. Even Jesus himself, the perfect Sinless Son of God, never sinned, always going to the Father in prayer, drawing strength from the Father in his humanity as he carried out his ministry. So if you would go and stand with me as we read God's word together. Today we're just going to cover part one, and that will bring us up through verse 13. Uh, Paul switches gears a little bit in verse 14, although we'll talk a little more about the structure or the lack thereof next week and in maybe the week following. But at least for this week, we seem to have a chunk here in verses 9 to 13. So let's go ahead and read God's word together. I'm going to start at the beginning of chapter 12, as we typically do, and I'm going to read up through verse 21 so that you can see where we're headed. But today our focus will be verses 9 to 13. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And now for today's text. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And that's our text for today. And now I'll go ahead and read the rest of this larger section. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable 
in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can go ahead and be seated. Before we pray, I just want to make one general observation here, and that is, you know, we've grown accustomed to uh, talking about Christianity as not being about the do's and the don'ts. We, we can throw the baby out with the bathwater on that. And what I mean by this is it, we've grown accustomed, and I say we, I, I think recent trends over the last 10 years, recent healthy trends over the last 10 or so years within uh, evangelical Christianity has emphasized, particularly among Reformed Protestants, has emphasized very much that uh, it, Christianity is not about the do's and the don'ts. And so we associate the do's and the don'ts with legalism. We talk about legalistic churches, lists of what you don't do and lists of what you ought to do. And it's very easy for us to overemphasize that to the point that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We throw out the truth that there are many lists of do's and don'ts in God's word. There are many places where we are told very specifically what we are to do and what we are not to do. And what we find here in Romans 12 is very much one of those lists. The right emphasis is not to get rid of do's and don'ts, but it is to ground our do's and don'ts in an explicit gospel. To do exactly what the Apostle Paul has done. For 11 chapters and now entering into chapter 12. So I hope for some of us, that may be a corrective for you. If you've been thinking very much in, in this uh, kind of bifurcated way, as, as you've seen on the one hand, this do and don't kind of Christianity, and on the other, this grace-based Christianity, I hope you'll begin to see that in the New Testament, there really isn't that kind of distinction, that there is a fluid movement between the truth of the gospel, which then grounds what we are and are not to do. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his grace to understand his word. Father, we're so grateful to gather again in the name of your son. Father, we gather here this morning as a, a little miniature resurrection day which we celebrate as Easter once a year. Lord, here we are celebrating it this morning in the fall because all that we do right now is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is in this raised, exalted Jesus of Nazareth, the promised Christ. Father, we thank you that the promise of Christ goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, where as you cursed the ground on account of Adam and Eve's sin, as you expelled them from the garden, as you pronounced your judgment on the human race, you made a promise. You made a promise that you would send one from the seed of of the woman who would crush Satan's head, who would undo the fall, who would restore the world, restore the cosmos, restore everything in right relationship with you. God, we thank you that these promises of this, of this deliverer, of this restorer, they run all throughout Scripture, all the way from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, and then as we see the fulfillment in the coming of Jesus the Christ in the New Testament. Father, we thank you for this Christ, and we thank you that we, though once far off as Gentiles, those who did not know you, those who were without God and had no hope, you have brought near 
by the blood of Christ. You have made us partakers in these heavenly blessings. You have brought us in to be part of the household of God. Father, we praise you that you have made us Christians. Lord, help us live as Christians, truly in practice, not to just be satisfied with the abstract, but Lord, to live out our Christian lives when it hurts the most, to live out our Christian lives in every detail of life. Thank you for a passage like Romans 12, 9 through through 21. Lord, thank you for all of these instructions. Thank you for all of these do's and don'ts which guide us in the way of the Spirit. Father, we pray now that your Spirit would guide us as uh, this text is preached and as it is heard. Would you use it to rekindle faith in the gospel and to rekindle a desire to live wholeheartedly for you while we draw breath in this world? Be with us now, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. So as we begin with verses 9 to 13, we see four overarching instructions, and these are going to be our points this morning. If you take taking notes, here they are. We've got lots of little instructions here, and I've tried to sort of get at the, the base idea behind them, and so... We're going to start this morning with four instructions or four commands that uh, we get up through verse 13. So here they are. Love truly, serve intensely, live vertically, and provide generously. That at least gets us into this, this larger section. Let me say this. Uh, it has been argued by some that this first uh, this first idea, love, let love be genuine, actually guides the entire section. And it is at least worth noting that love is the first place Paul's mind goes, right? That's, that's where Paul begins because of how fundamental love is. He begins at that point. So let's start with love truly. And for this, we're going to look at verses 9 to 10. So go there with me as we read that again. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And there's just so, there's so much here. This is so practical, such practicality in so few words. It should not surprise us, as I said before, that Paul begins here. We must love one another. That's where he starts. Love one another. And we know that how important this is because these are Jesus's last words to his disciples. Uh, I remember I came to Four Corners right in the middle, right in the middle of the farewell discourse uh, in the Gospel of John. And it was just such a blessing to pick up with John 15. But right there in the middle of this farewell discourse, Jesus' last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross, his big marching orders is this, love one another. You know, I've been in church for a long time, at least, you know, for someone who's 38 years old, for, you know, relatively speaking. But I've been in church since I was three years old. And I've seen a lot of nastiness in church. I've seen a lot of wonderful things in church, but I've also seen a lot of nastiness. And anyone who's grown up in church, who's been in church for uh, some time, knows how much Christians need to be reminded to love each other. How absolutely fundamental and how frequently neglected this is. Love each other. Christians love each other. This is, this word love, is one of the most important words describing Christianity. In fact, Jesus himself makes clear that to love God and neighbor is the summary of all ethical teaching. All ethics, Jesus says, must be boiled down to this one word, love, the true life. The good life, the beautiful life, 
is one of love. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can give your, your body to be burned. But if you don't have love, it is absolutely nothing. You could do anything, religiously speaking, but if it is not bound up, saturated with, rooted in, defined by love, it's nothing. It's vanity. It's futility. It brings nothing. So we know that this word love is central to Christianity, but unfortunately the world has always been in the business of hijacking the idea of love. This has always been the case. But I think especially in our culture today, how often we see this word love used, how often we see it misused, twisting it and watering it down. And I think a good example is what I mentioned earlier with uh, the Getty song, In Christ Alone. Uh, They're uh, so uncomfortable with the wrath of God that that is replaced with the love of God is magnified. So, So here, love being wrenched away from the cross, from from God showing his love and pouring out his wrath on his son in our place, the glorious love of that being divorced from this, this ephemeral, vaporous idea of love that they have in mind there. Everywhere we look, love is twisted and watered down. It is zapped of its true meaning. So Paul here tells us in the most practical terms what it looks like to love truly. And of course, this is not uh, comprehensive. This is not everything you could say about love. We get a lot of really good juicy stuff there in 1 Corinthians 13, which Stan read to us earlier. But we do get much insight into what it practically means to love truly, to have real love. And here the focus is on love between God's people, love within the church. By the way, it is frequently noted in the New Testament that love begins here. Here. So look, if you can't love these people, you're not loving anybody out there. You're fooling yourself. If you can't love these folks, if you can't love first and serve first and care about first these people who are one with you in Christ, then you're fooling yourself if you're thinking you're showing a lot of love out there in the world. Love within the church. So let's look at what Paul says. First, love is without hypocrisy. It is genuine. It is sincere. It is not a pretense to get something or to please someone. How much of that do we find in our world? How much of that might even be present in our church? How much of that is present in our, in our own hearts? Love, showing love, these, these outward manifestations of love that are really about self-advancement and people-pleasing. Self-advancement and people-pleasing is not the kind of love Paul is talking about here. This is a sincere, genuine love. It is not a nice smile one minute and a talking bad about that person the next minute. How much of that goes on? This Love moves seamlessly from the heart to the behavior. Just very fluid. From the heart to the behavior. It is without pretense. Second, this love is also with substance. It is without hypocrisy, but it is also with substance. Rather than being a mere sentiment... It shows up in how we think about the welfare of another person. I mean, how much does love get categorized by mere sentiment in our culture? That's why the divorce rate is so high, is because there, it, love has, has been reduced to the way that we feel, 
the way we feel in any given moment about any given person. And when we just don't feel it anymore, we move on. And we have another feeling. And then that gets a little old. And then we move on. We have another feeling. We chase our feelings. We chase our sentiments. That's not biblical love. That is not God's understanding of love among human beings. Rather than being a mere sentiment, it shows up in how we think about the welfare of the person whom we are loving. We abhor the evil and hold fast to the good. I remember when I first memorized this, this particular portion, I was thinking, that seems a little disjointed. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Seems like Paul's just really going from one thing to another. But no, you notice from the next verse, as you move into verse 10, he's still talking about love. And so we have to understand what he says there about abhorring the evil and clinging to the good. We have to understand that in the context of love. What does it look like to love another person? It is to earnestly seek their good. It is to utterly hate. That word abhor is very strong. The English word abhor is very strong. The Greek word here is a very strong verb. To abhor that which harms them. This is true love. So let me encourage you to do this. The next time that you are relating to your unbelieving friend or family member and they believe that you are being unloving by talking to them about the gospel, by addressing their sin with them, by, by pointing them to Christ as the only remedy for sin, and they say to you, you are being unloving. Say, no, 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 no. Let me show you why I am doing this. Bring them to Romans 12 and say, I am trying to be supremely loving because I am called by God to love you truly, to love you substantively. And what that means is that I am to hate with a passion. I am to abhor that which destroys your life. I am to hate that which destroys your life soul. This is true love. To abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good as we relate to others. Third, this love is characterized by family warmth and affection. Paul uses two words here that are used for love within a family. Paul is drawing the minds of his readers. These Folks from Rome gathered together. They didn't know each other before they heard the gospel. They were in different walks of life. Some maybe wealthier folks, although from 1 Corinthians, uh, I don't think there are many of those, but some wealthier folks, some even Caesar's household folks, and some slaves, been slaves their whole lives. Very different walks of life, very different in their social status. And these people have been brought together into this association and even more into this thing that is now a family. Paul wants them to understand you belong, Christian, to a family now. And the love that you naturally have with those in your family just comes by nature, right? When your child is born... You don't have to try to love them. It's just there. And it is there powerfully. And it stays there. It's not to say we don't get frustrated. That's not to say we don't have bad days. But that, that love for them, that affection for them, is so innate and natural, placed there by God. We love them deeply, warmly, dearly. It's just an example with our children. This kind of love that we have for our siblings, for our parents, for our spouses in particular, our one flesh partners in life, this is the kind of love, this familial love that we are to have for each other here. What are we doing? What are we doing when we don't do that? 
Not living as Christians, that's for sure. Brothers and sisters. Constant language used throughout the New Testament. Brothers. Paul addresses them at the very beginning of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And this anticipates what he's going to say here about this family love. We really are, we really are a family. You're going to be in heaven, in a new heaven, and a new earth with these folks and many others, not for a thousand years, not for 10,000 years, not for a hundred thousand years, not for a hundred billion years, forever and ever and ever. You're going to be with these folks in your family. So let's act like it now, already. Fourth, he says that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. This is a concern for lifting others up. Let me ask this question. Just think about this for a moment. How can we tear each other down or become critical of each other? How can we be puffed up with pride when we are so preoccupied with doing all that we can to lift each other up. Do you see that? Do you see the, the wisdom of these words? Do you see the power among the people of God of these words? That we just, there, there's no room, there's no room in mind or in life for criticizing and tearing down and thinking the worst, and grumbling, and gossiping, and all of that, because we're just so busy lifting each other up. It's an exercise in elevation going on all the time between Christians. That's what it looks like to live the Christian life. If there is to be any competition in the church, it should be concerned with how much we can give honor to one another. Doesn't that change the way we think about each other? This really is radical stuff. It, it hits, I think, home very much for all of us. This is love for one another. How much can we give honor to one another? Secondly, we are to serve intensely. So we are to love truly. That is a big, fat do. Do this. And then secondly, we are to serve intensely. Once again, a big, fat do. Starts with a do not, though. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. You know, probably one of the most well-known verses that many of you probably have memorized is Matthew 6.33. Jesus says that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, this comes at the end of worry. There's a big old passage on worry. And at the end of that, Jesus says, look, don't be seeking after these things, because when you are doing that, you're going to be worrisome. But seek first the kingdom of God and, 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 and his righteousness, and, and God's going to take care of all of those things. But these, this verse has become important for our understanding of what we are to be about. As we live our lives, we are to be about God's kingdom, God's work, God's mission in the world. But for various reasons, we grow cold. We grow cold, we grow dry, we grow unproductive in serving God and his church. And Paul says here that one of those reasons, one of the reasons that we grow cold or dry or unproductive is that we become, here's that awful word, slothful. Just sounds bad. I think sloths are pretty cool animals. You know, they're, they're pretty interesting. When we go to the zoo, we always uh, look for the sloth. But it, it is a fascinating creature, but God has very much put it there as a contrast to the ant. You, you, you have a, a sloth in his cage, and you look down on the ground, and you see an ant very different. We are to be like the ant, not like the sloth. Slothful and lazy. We lose our drive and diligence for the things of God. Intensity turns to lethargy. 
We've seen this in our lives. We see this in churches, in our church. We see it in other people's lives. Intensity turns to lethargy. Jesus uses this word lazy or slothful in Matthew 25, 26. And it's interesting, he uses it with regard to, well, in the parable of the talents. Jesus gives out the the talents and he expects that the individuals take those talents and invest them, or the master in the the parable gives those, those talents to his servants and they're to take those talents and invest them. And two of the guys do that, but one guy doesn't. He just takes that one talent and he buries it says, I'm good. Then he just chills out for a while. And then the master comes back and he digs back up that talent. Says, here it is. I kept it for you. No one took it away from me. Listen to what the master here, Christ himself, says to this kind of servant. His master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Now, is that interesting? I mean, we don't typically think about laziness and slothfulness being in association with wickedness. I mean, wickedness, there are a lot of things we put in that category, you know, over in that bucket. But slothfulness and laziness, I mean, everybody struggles with that, right? Look at what Jesus does with it here. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. It's a serious thing to be a slothful servant. In contrast to laziness, Paul gives two instructions. First, be fervent in spirit. This doesn't have to do with your energy level, so let me just say that. This doesn't have to do with how much energy you have. It has to do with being stirred up in your heart by the spirit. So you can't get out of this one just because you're tired. Let me say this. The person who is on his or her deathbed with no energy can obey this command. Isn't that amazing? So you can't get out of it just because you have three or four kids under five and you never get any sleep and the coffee doesn't even work and you're exhausted. You can't get out of this one. You can't get out of this one because you work third shift and then you come in in the morning and you sleep, but it's not good sleep. It's only four or five hours and then you're tired all day or whatever thing you can put there that would uh, describe your level of energy. A lack of energy is not what is in view here. It's a lack of spiritual fervor. It's the idea of being on fire or boiling over on the inside. It's the idea of having a fire lit in your soul, a bonfire in your soul that is burning up into your behavior, into your thinking, into how you treat other people. Let me say it this way. We have a responsibility to fight for our spiritual temperature. You know, you might be thinking in these terms. Well, sometimes I'm You know, I think this is rampant in Christian circles. We're passive. We think, oh, you know, I I felt really, really alive spiritually yesterday, today. I, you know, I'm kind of, kind of down and and dry. And then, you know, just like it's, it's a bit like a roller coaster. Now we do know that we're not to sort of chase feelings, but one of the things that we are to remember is what Paul says here, and that is that we are responsible. Let me say this: we are responsible for actively keeping a fire burning in here, right? You you can't get out of that. The Christian life is not a passive thing. It's not as though you're just living the Christian life and you're expecting God to come by and light your fire today. God, come and light my fire today. Oh, God didn't light it today. Maybe he'll light it tomorrow. No, you light the fire today in the spirit of God. Seek him, get in his word, pray. Maintain that burning soul. Keep the eye on. Keep the water boiling. We have a responsibility to keep that going. Or it wouldn't be a command. Second, Paul says, serve the Lord. Everything we do is for Jesus Christ. Everything. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. That's who we serve. 
the Lord. Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24 is probably one of, the, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Now notice that. Whatever you do, you could put anything there. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. But we're supposed to serve each other. We've just been told we're supposed to love each other. Yes, but ultimately and deeply and truly we are serving Christ. Not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's who we serve. Part of the reason we lose our zeal, listen to this, part of the reason maybe that you've lost your zeal is because you're doing your work for yourself or for other people. You're self-advancing or people-pleasing, and that's the reason that you have become cold or dry. And so we burn out. People talk about uh, burnout. And particularly, you know, there's a lot of talk about burnout among pastors. And I remember so refreshing. I remember hearing uh, John MacArthur talk about this uh, and just, just totally shoot it down and say, what in the world is this whole burnout among pastors things, you know? And what he was saying was, look, we don't burn out we burn up with the Spirit of God. This, we burn out. Pastors burn out. Elders burn out. Deacons burn out. People in church burn out. When you're people-pleasing, when you're trying to make people pat you on the back, when you're, when you're hungering and thirsting for affirmation and recognition from other human beings, that's when you burn out. You burn out when you're doing what you're doing so that you can climb a ladder and get further along in life. That's when we burn out. That's when we get cold. That's when we get dry. Paul says, don't burn out, burn up from the inside by the Spirit of God. And serve King Jesus. Serve the Christ, not yourself or others. The way that we do this, this is the way we worship. We worship by serving our king. So thirdly, we see live vertically. We have love truly, serve intensely, and thirdly, live vertically. Look at verse 12 with me. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You know, this is really is one of my favorite verses in Romans. It's just stuck with me like very few other verses. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You know, people like to have life verses, and I think that's totally fine. It's a way of centering yourself, and you put it on your email, or you put it at the end of a card, or whatever. I mean, that, that sort of thing is helpful. It, it, it defines what we're after, and this is a great life verse. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This is what it means to live vertically. But it's important that we see that all three of these instructions are closely related to one another. So these are not just isolated instructions. They're intertwined. First, we rejoice in hope. We are full of joy because of what God has prepared for us. We are looking out to the future. You know, this became such a big deal in Genesis. The way that Abraham is looking forward, Hebrews 11 captures this, but Abraham is looking forward. And Isaac is looking forward, and Jacob's looking forward, and we see this uh, with J Jacob being buried back in Canaan. And we see Joseph looking forward as he's about to die. He says, oh, when you leave, it's going to happen. It's definite. There's no question about it. So when you do, you need to take my bones away from here and put them back in Canaan. It's certain. It's, it's certain. That's Christian faith. Christian faith is full of hope. It's not, I hope it's going to work out. I hope it's going to be okay in the end. I hope God's going to do what he promised. No, it's certainty that looks forward to the future. And it is full of joy. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that his readers would know what is the hope to which God has called them. That they would know the hope. 
They would understand it. They would have it seen with the eyes of their hearts. We are in constant need of the gospel because the gospel enshrines our hope. We move away from the gospel. We move away from hope. We are by nature, as Christians, a waiting people. That's who we are. It defines us at the very core. We are a waiting, anticipating, expectant people. That's the way Paul describes us in Titus 2, verse 13. We are those who are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Romans 8, 24, he's already said this a few chapters before uh, ours right now, chapter 12, 824, for in this hope we were saved. We were saved in this hope. When we trusted Christ, part and parcel of our faith in Christ was this hope in future glory. Based on the resurrection, we've been born again, Peter says, to a living hope. It is, we are born anew to a living hope in what? In the raised Christ coming back and raising us. And giving us eternal life. Notice the relationship here. I think this is very practical and helpful, insightful for us. Notice the relationship here between joy and hope. Hope in the gospel and joy. Let me say this to us. Where hope in the gospel decreases, joy decreases. So maybe... You're here this morning, you say, I just don't have a lot of joy. I just don't have a lot of joy. Well, if you don't have a lot of joy, it is because you don't have a lot of hope. Because hope breeds joy. The more fixation there is on the gospel, the more meditation there is on the truths of Christ's coming, his appearing, his death, burial and resurrection and exaltation, his future coming for us in glory and all that that entails, the more that our minds are fixated on that and meditating upon that, the more we will grow in joy. Christians alone have joy. Let me say that again. Christians alone have joy. Many people have happiness. Some people are more happy by nature. Some people are more melancholic by nature you know a little down a little negative a little troubled you know all the way up just just by nature wired that way other people never down it seems just never just always happy-go-lucky just always feeling good about life that's what our world pursues anything you can do therapeutically to breed happiness in your life that's what our world holds forward as a good thing. Buy a new car. Watch the commercials on cars. They're ridiculous. Buy a new car. You get this car, you will be so happy. No, it's not true. Buy a new house. You'll be happy. Do this. Do that. Travel here. Stay at Sandals. Stay at, stay, go, go wherever. Wherever. Do this. Get that. You will be happy. And these promises are empty because, yes, they will breed a little fire of happiness, but then it, it goes out. And, and so our world is basically chasing happiness all the way up to the end, and then they die and face God, the one for whom they never lived. They sought their own happiness their whole life, but never their maker, never the one who made them, who loves them, and who sent his very own son to be the remedy for, for their sin. What I'm talking about here is gospel joy. It transcends all circumstances in life. To hope in the gospel is to do what Paul describes in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's what a Christian's doing all the time in here. Looking up, thinking 
vertically. And as our eyes are vertically fixed and future-oriented, it transforms the way we deal with life's trials. We become patient in tribulation, as Paul says here. And this patience increases our hope as well. Romans 5, 3 to 4, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And how do we do all of this? How do we keep our eyes fixed above? How do we endure tribulations? The answer is given at the end. We stay constant in prayer. So here's the thing. You have no joy. It's because hope has decreased. And that is likely because prayer has decreased. So put those three back together and go forth. Put those three back together. Find your joy in your hope through prayer. It's a life verse for you. Fourthly, we come to provide generously as we close this morning, looking at verse 13. Let's go there. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here Paul moves from our zealous service and our heavenly mindedness back into the life of the church. And let me just say this, our attitude toward the Lord always shows up in our attitude to one another. I mean, John said that, 1 John 4, 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. If you've got fluttery feelings about God and you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ poorly, I don't know what those fluttery feelings are, but they're not from the Spirit of God. There should be a direct relationship between how you feel about God and relate to God and how you treat other Christians. You can say that you're riding a spiritual high or you're close with the Lord or you're walking intimately with God, but if you treat Christians like garbage, you are a liar. That's what John says. So we've circled back to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, whom we are to love without hypocrisy, with substance, with warmth, and with honor. And part of that, we see here, means meeting people's needs. But I want you to see, this is, this is interesting, Paul's language here goes beyond merely meeting needs. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. But the verb actually says more than that. It's not merely to contribute to the needs of the saints, but it is to participate in or share in the needs of the saints. The imagery is of, of seeing your brother or your sister in need and not just sort of reaching into your pocket and handing them something or taking 15 minutes to meet that need, although that may be what it takes, but it is to enter into the need of that person such that you begin to wear that need as your own need. By the way, this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. We enter into, we bear with the needs of others as our own. And second, he says, seek to show hospitality. And I want us to, as we finish, I want to draw your attention to this one uh, very particular verb here. He says, he uses the word to pursue or run after. That's interesting. Paul doesn't just say, be hospitable. When the opportunity arises and it's right there glaring you in the face, don't fail to show a little hospitality. That's not what Paul says. He says, run after or pursue hospitality. We are not merely to show it, we are to pursue it, to find ways to be hospitable. This is active, not passive. Well, when I hear of a need, I'll try to meet it the best I can. Where are the needs? This is, this is like a hound dog sniffing out needs, and in this case, the need of shelter, hospitality. And we've got some folks here in our church, I, I would just say, who have done that for people in our church. It's been a blessing to watch. It's the life of Christ in us. It's the power of the Spirit in us. People who have showed this hospitality. Next week, we will return back to this list, verses 9 to 21, but let me just encourage you as we leave today to memorize these verses. 
verses 9 to 21. You know, we memorize those great, big, grandiose verses, uh, like verses 1 to 2, which are so fundamental. But sometimes it's nice to have a practical grid, right? Sometimes it's nice to have some nuts and bolts in place so that as we go out into life, you know, like 1 Corinthians 13, we say, oh, that was rude. Oh, oh that was irritable. Eh, don't do that. That's not affectionate. Oh, I'm repaying evil for evil, right? Right? So we, we need these practical things in our minds, swimming around in our minds, so that when in our nasty flesh we go to sin, the Holy Spirit takes those words, puts them on the front, and says, no, that's not the way of the kingdom. That's not life in the Spirit. That's not Christ-likeness. So let me just encourage you. This is a great set of verses to, mem to memorize. And I pray that this week these various practical instructions will guide you as you seek to live a real, authentic, faithful, though imperfect, Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you for these penetrating words, God, and the depth of wisdom that are presented here, Lord. We, we find nothing like this in our world, not even among the greatest philosophers that the world has seen. This is truth, God. We praise you for it, and we pray that we would feed on it and live it for your glory and by means of your spirit. Would you go with us now, Lord, as we enter into the Lord's Supper? What a blessing to commune together as we think about our love for one another. Would you, uh, as we think about our service for you, and our love for one another. Lord, would this just be a special time to partake of communion? In Jesus' name.